Good. And last week we looked at, I believe, in God the Father Almighty. And the original creed, that was all that was in there. It wasn't maker of heaven and earth. And so then we don't have to argue about, uh, are you a young earth creationist? Are you a uh, theistic evolutionist? Are you a gap theory? No, God did it. Okay, I'm good with that. God did it. We don't have to know the details of how. Um, and uh, I think a lot of us, we were so set in, in our secondary theological views. We're going to get to heaven and we're going to be like, oh, my goodness, I can't believe I fought over that. I was so wrong. But there are some things you can't miss. And I think that's what the creed captures. God did it. God is. So uh, we're going to look at the second line today. And so I believe a creed, creed just is, credo means I believe in Latin. And uh, a lot of you guys are studying, starting to, just starting to get your toes wet in Greek. And in Greek, you say pistuo. Personally, I'm going to bias you all. A lot of you guys are young college students. I really don't care a whole lot about what the Latin Bible says or what people said in the Latin after the apostles wrote everything down in the Greek. What I don't know is what was going on in the Greek. And usually what the Latin is, is it got it off track and you got to go back to the Greek to clean it up. So in the Greek, and you don't say credo, you say pistuo. And that comes from the, the uh, word for faith, which is pistis. And uh, so we have the Greek there of the original creed. And then we have the statement in English. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, which is the first statement. We're not going to talk a lot about that today. Today, we're going to look at the second statement. And in Christ Jesus, this, and I'm doing it kind of in the order that the Greek is in. And uh, we learned, we say, and in Jesus Christ is only son, our Lord. That's how the Apostles Creed go, which goes, which came from this. But literally, it says in Christ Jesus, the son of him, the unique Monogene, very, very important word, the unique, as in there's never been one like him and there never will be another one like Jesus. Because of what Jesus did, we can be in God's family, we can be adopted, we can be his children, but not monogene. That's a unique son. We're going to look at look what, what that means. And then the Lord of us, which is another Greek word that you guys should know. Anybody know what the word for Lord is? A little louder. Kurios. Kurios. Um, so he's the Lord of us. So um, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, and in Christ Jesus. We will use to say his only son, but it's really his unique son, our Lord. And I want to break this down. I want to look at some uh, why this is such a great statement. People are like, I'm not into creeds. I'm into the Bible. Well, this is just straight statements out of the Bible. It just, what do you do, what do, you do when you, uh, you're a cook and you boil things down to make them more intense? What's that called? Reduction. Reduction. So we're reducing down all these lofty theological contents into a super uh, cogent, tight statement. So if someone says, what do you believe? If you can explain this, sometimes we, we say things like parrots. We don't even know what they mean. Some of you grew up with the Apostles' Creed. You didn't have a clue what you were saying. You're actually a kid, and, and you probably fell asleep during church, but you just heard it so many times that you could say it while you're thinking about, you know, what's going to be on television or what you can do after church. You just, but if you actually think about it, you know what's being said. It's, it's an incredible statement, and if you can explain it to somebody else, 
that means you're not just following someone else's faith. You, you have your own brain and you have your own faith and your own set of beliefs. So I believe, so we're going to look at this second statement here, kind of break it down a little bit, just look at some aspects of it. The first thing about the statement says, I believe in Christ Jesus. Uh, Christ isn't his first or last name. Uh, it's more like a title. And all of Israel, for hundreds, even thousands of years, there was, there was a promise to the nation of Israel that there was going to be an anointed one, a Mashiach. And again, we're, we're in, we're in uh, Greek. So this is a, a Greek, this is basically taken from the Greek, this uh, idea of a Christ. It's an anointed one. And there are all these promises about where this anointed one's coming from. And what in the Old Testament, you'd anoint a king for, for a divinely appointed office. You'd anoint a prophet, someone who speaks for God. You'd anoint a priest. And basically, there's this one figure coming. And he's going to be all of them wrapped up into one. And he's going to be this amazing figure. People didn't fully understand that it was actually going to be God himself wrapped in human skin who's going to fulfill all these roles. And we're going to talk about that. But I believe that Jesus Christ, in the first place, he's the anointed, the one that the prophets were talking about. Talking about. So Peter summarizes this and he says, The prophets who prophesied, what prophets? Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Abraham, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, David, Bacchus, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, and the ones who don't have books, like Elijah. They were all talking about this coming anointed figure um, <laughs> centuries before Jesus shows up. And Peter, who is the leader among the apostles, among the 12, he said, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful search and inquiry, seeking to know what person or time the spirit of Christ. So the very spirit that anointed this figure is the one that was inspiring the prophets. Isn't that interesting? The spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ, because the Bible talks about the death of this amazing anointed figure. The prophecies like Isaiah 53, which you really ought to know. If you're, if you're serious and you want to be able to share the gospel with people, it reads like the newspaper the day after Jesus' death and resurrection, but it was written 700 years before his death. So anyway, who were they talking about? These The people that wrote them weren't even sure. The prophets who wrote about the, the sufferings of Christ, the glories that follow, it was revealed to them that they weren't serving themselves. They weren't, it wasn't for them. It was for our dispensation. It was for our time, this new era they were serving you in the things which have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So these are mysteries that were hidden from men, hidden from angels. Jesus comes on the scene and says, ta-da, I'm, I'm fulfilling all these prophecies. So after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, uh, his, the leader of the movement, the tip of the spear, which is Peter, he, he writes to the early churches, and he says, in the first place, Jesus is a Christ. Let's put that in the creed. Pretty important stuff. Uh, Jesus, in Luke 4, his first sermon, he goes back and he pulls out one of those prophecies. He came to Nazareth, Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath. And he stood up and he read. Uh, and the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, just coincidentally. And he opened the book and found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me 
because he has anointed me. There's that Mashiach and that, that word. That's where that would come in, that Christ. To preach the gospel to the poor, he sent me to proclaim release to captives, recovery of the sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. So this figure is going to be a deliverer, a hero for the oppressed and the poor and a liberator in so many ways that we're even beyond our human understanding. I mean, he was going to fix things, not just on earth, but the whole cosmic realm. He was going to, he was going to vanquish evil and set the universe right. And as he closed the book, he gave it back to the attendants. He sat down and everybody's <coughs> looking at him. Their eyes were fixed on him. And he said to them today, that scripture about that anointed one, that Christ, that Mashiach, they're fulfilled. So Jesus knew he was the Christ. He knew he was that promised one. So this is pretty amazing word, right? It's not his last name, but Jesus Christ. Hey, what's your name? My name's Tad Trap. What does that mean? Nothing. Just who I am. So what's your name? Jesus Christ. And what does that mean? Uh, nothing really. They just stuck it on me when I was born. I don't know. No, this is huge. This is a title. This is the, this is the, the hope of the ages being fulfilled in this person, Christ. Uh, right there, first thing it says about Jesus in the creed. But that wasn't really the one I was that excited about. So you can go study that for a lifetime if you want to. But um, I'm now, I want to get on to the curios thing, because that was really the one that kind of got my attention this morning. Another thing about this um, uh, Christ, Christos uh, concept is there's a time where Jesus has all his disciples around, and they were pretty obtuse. They didn't really know what was going on for so much of Jesus's earthly ministry. They were putting their feet in their mouth and falling all over each other, really like the Keystone Cops, you know, bumping into each other and doing dumb things. And Jesus was like, oh, my goodness. You know, at one point, he's like, how long do I have to put up with you guys? He literally said that. But uh, so he's sitting around with the disciples. And he says, who do people say that I am? I'm like, oh, some people say you're Elijah. Some people say you're one of the prophets. And, you know, some people say John the Baptist, blah, blah, blah. Um, he says, who do you say? And Peter said, you are the Christ. Remember that? Son of the living God. And Jesus said, you got it. Peter, flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you. My father revealed that to you. That's the great mystery that you have to understand. He is the hope of the ages. He is the fulfillment of everything. When the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, uh, born, under, born of a woman, born under the law. So anyway, this is that concept so again, if you don't just blast past these things and you study the creed and you know these words, profound themes that run all the way through the Bible. So now let's move on. I believe in Christ Jesus. Of course, Jesus, his name, Yeshua, it's the same as Joshua in Hebrew, but in the Greek, it's pronounced a little different. It just means salvation. So his name is salvation because he is salvation. In the ancient Near East, your name was intimately connected to what you were. And if what you were changed, a lot of times you change your name. But Jesus didn't need to change. He was born to be salvation. He was salvation. He accomplished our salvation. And that's why we're singing loud this morning, because that's what he is. That's who he is. But he's Jesus, titled the Christ. He's fulfilled that role. Uh, the son of him who? God the Father Almighty. The unique one of a kind. A unique one. So he's the son of God. Huyas, it has to do with when I have a son, he has my nature. And that's why he's unique. None of us were born with the nature of God. Um, Jesus was never born. He, he just, he's eternally existent, but he and God share the same nature. But this one of a kind concept, it actually comes up in the most famous 
verse in the entire Bible, at least for Protestants in the West. What, what's that? John 3.16. Probably someone might be holding it up in the, you know, in the end zone at the Super Bowl today. Um, try to get people's attention. That verse, God so loved the world. We're singing about the love of God that he gave his one-of-a-kind son, monogenic son. That whoever believes in him, his son, will not perish but have eternal life. Billy Graham called this the gospel in a nutshell. And if you understand that, uh, it was what Tim was talking about. God loved you so much, sinner. I'm not going to look at anyone. <laughs> Traitor, reprobate, rebel. I'm looking at people. <laughs> you had no right. To be in a relationship with him. Uh, you know, people are like, God, I don't deserve this. Whenever someone's saying that, I'm saying, you know what you deserve? You deserve to cook in hell for all eternity. Anything beyond that's gravy. That's all you deserve is hell. But he loved you. And uh, again, how, how did he redeem you? He gave his son. You're like, well, that wasn't very fair. Well, Jesus said, no one takes away my life from me. I do this on my own initiative. I know exactly what I'm doing. So, and D.L. Moody made a really nice point. Those of you who are dads in here, some of you brand new dads, would it be easier if someone walked in this room with a gun and they were holding someone ransom and they said, you know what, I'm gonna let this person go, but I'm either gonna kill you or I'm gonna kill your kid. What would you say? Kill me. I got a dad up here. He said, just like that. Dio Moody said, you know what? It's a greater demonstration of love what the father did. A lot of us think the father's a crank. He's a grump. He's a jerk. Dio Moody pointed, no, it's harder for a father. It'd be harder for a father to let a son die in someone's place than to die himself. But we're going to talk about the Trinity here in a minute. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's one of the great mysteries of right-thinking Christians down <laughs> to the ages one of them had to do it. Um, and this, it was the son. And it, this, it wasn't like, no, no, dad, I don't want to do it. Someone's got to do it. So get out there and do it. No, it was like they loved us. And one of them had to do it. That was the son. The son took our place. That one, in a, one of a kind son. So uh, how is Jesus unique? How is he one of a kind? Already said that. So, um, in the first place, he is by nature one of a kind because he is the only son who is divine, fully divine. He didn't become God at some point. He didn't become God when he was born in Bethlehem. He didn't become God at some point in the, you know, 57 billion years ago. God said, Hey, I think I want a kid. No, he's eternally existent God. Now, we don't understand that because we're in the created order and, and things, you know, we give birth to other things. But he's eternally existent God. God existed in three persons. But Jesus Christ always had the divine nature. And before he became a child in Bethlehem, all through the Bible, like John 17, he talks about the glory which I had with you, Father, before the world was. The prophets, even the Old Testament, said his goings forth are from everlasting he doesn't have a beginning. He doesn't have an end. How is he the one and only, you know, the unique son of God? He is God. He's God the son. And so the, by nature, you and I are not by nature gods. 
So we'll never be identical to Jesus. We can't be. There's only one Jesus. There's only one divine son. And this is what the book of Hebrews says. You can pillage the Bible, but I need to move through this stuff quickly. But this Hebrews says it perhaps more clearly and concisely. John says it a bunch of times really nicely. But this verse, it's hard to beat this one when you want to nail down why Jesus was unique and the unique divine nature that he had. God, and he's talking about the Father, after he spoke long ago to, to the fathers, that's the people in the Old Testament, in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, he's talking about the Old Testament, the Torah, the writings, the, the prophets, uh, writings of Moses, etc. In these last days, he's spoken to us in his son, that's Jesus, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. He, Jesus, is the radiance of his glory and the exact Exact. That means whatever God the Father is, God the Son is. Exact. Not very much like, really close. Like maybe my son kind of looks like me, but he's kind of different. No, whatever Godness is, Jesus has got it. The exact representation of his nature. And he, Jesus, upholds everything by the word of his power. So, creed's really loaded if you connect it to the scripture. He's the Christ, but he's also God's unique son. And so now let's talk about this mystery. And some people are like, well, I can't understand the Trinity, so it can't be true. Um, I say this all the time. Just go watch a PBS special on quantum physics. That's just creation. And you will walk out of there, you know, like maybe you need to go check yourself into the uh, institution or something. What, what we're discovering about the created world that we can't understand. There, there are pot particles that, that coexist in infinite numbers of places at the same time. Well, there's not because I can't understand. Yes, there is. And there, at every great university, there's a whole uh, department that is now dedicated to testing this realm called quantum physics that is blowing our minds. It's totally different than Newtonian physics. There's things about creation we can't understand. Um, and uh, so anyway, we talk about the Trinity. So I can't, there's things we can't understand, but we just say, well, they're true. And they're coming from God's realm. So, you know, he's infinite. He's not material. He's not bound to the laws of time and space like we are. He doesn't have parameters. He doesn't have a beginning or an end. So if he's three people in one thing, fine. We're one people in one thing. That's the way we do it down here. But he's three one thing called God. So this is kind of a well-known um, one thing called God. In the center there, you see God. Because you have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. The Spirit is not the Son, et cetera, et cetera. But the Son is God. The Father is God. And this is how it works. There's one thing called God. There's only one God. But within that, some people call it the Godhead. There's three individual separate and distinct persons who are all identically God in nature, but not identically one another in person. So Jesus and the Father can have a conversation and Jesus and the Spirit can, but they're not three different gods. Okay, everybody clear on that? That's one of the great mysteries of the Christian faith. But all through the Bible, people, they say you can only worship God and people worship Jesus. And he just stands there. What happens in the Bible when someone worships an angel? So get up, you goof. What are you doing? I'm a creation. I know, I know I'm shocking because I'm glorious, but I'm, I'm a creation just like you. I'm just, 
I'm just kind of startling because I'm much more glorified than you are. But get up. You don't worship created things. People worship Jesus. And he's like, bring it on. That's appropriate. That's how you treat God. Um, and But Jesus can talk to the Father. He prays to the Father. And one of, one of the best snapshots in the Bible of this is the baptism of Jesus. There you have Jesus, God in the flesh. And God is, the Father is speaking from heaven. This is my son whom I'm well pleased. And then the spirit descends on him to empower him as a human being so he can work the supernatural. Now, had he not become a human being, he could have just done it all on his own. He could have used his power as God, but he set all those powers aside to become a person. Getting confused. This is, this is the creed. Jesus is the Christ, but he's also the unique son of God because he shares the nature of God. Creed is loaded. You got to know it. You got to be able to explain it. What's the other mystery? Oh, buckle up. Called the hypostatic union. <laughs> That's when you take two hypostases, which are different entities, different natures, and you put them together. You, you bring them together. So Jesus is fully God, as in the thing called God. He's fully man, as in the thing called man. And somehow God put one plus one equals one. And he made a nature of God and a nature of man into one person and that's jesus christ and he's forever that one person who is both god and man i don't understand that either so this all must be false no um and one of the ways we know it's not false is because if you can just get past the mysteries and say you know what i i didn't even pass college algebra so this is you know that i can't understand that's not a big deal but i believe that there's a god and i believe he loves me and i believe jesus is him and i believe he died for my sins because i know i'm a sinner and I know I got to do something about that. And he claims that if I believe in his death, burial, and resurrection, and I follow him and confess him to be Lord and allow him to forgive me, I will be transformed. It fixes you miraculously, magically, like nothing else. I've been all over the globe. There's nothing like Jesus. There's nothing like the gospel. Nobody else has a solution that's even close. And there's people in this room who are just, so bound up and completely lost and somehow by following Jesus and becoming more and more free and sane and people are like, oh, that's old fashioned. Oh, that's, that's not intellectually credible and blah, 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 blah. <laughs> Although some of the brightest people in history have believed this. Um, okay. You do you because I'm free. I know crazy and I know not crazy and I know lack of peace and I know peace and I know joy and I know lightness like Jesus talked about light easy yoke and it comes through Jesus. So anyway, we got some of these mysteries to go over and they're inherent in the creed because it starts with father. Then it goes son. Then it says, I believe in the Holy Spirit. That's Trinitarianism. Earliest statement of faith. It's all in there. But the, I just wanted to run through this real quick. You should be able to at least give. Don't, I mean, don't try to explain. There's no need to explain it. Well, it's kind of like water, you know, because water can be in vapor form, water can be frozen, and water can be liquid. So there, that's a trinity explained. Well, not exactly. You know, you can take it a little bit, you know, help people try to understand. But ultimately, it's like, look, God's from a different realm. Quantum physics has a whole different set of rules, and that's even in the same realm. You know, so, so these are the mysteries, but I believe in God the Father Almighty. And then, then the later creeds, but maker of heaven and earth. Well, where did he come from? He's not a part of the maid. He's a different. He's, he's everything about him is different. But in order to save the maid, 
as in not M-A-I-D, the milkmaid or the, whatever, the things that are made us creation. He had to become a part of it. And he made us to love us. But we got so far off and worthy of death and, you know, so covered with guilt that he had to come down and bring redemption to planet Earth. So he became a part of creation. And that's the hypostatic union. This God put on human flesh. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Why did he come? He came to redeem us back, bring us back into fellowship with God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So, yeah, this creed is loaded. But now I want to look at this word, Lord. Kurios, say kurios. Say kurios again. Kurios. No, I said say kurios again. No, just kidding. Um, yeah, kurios. In the New Testament, here now here's something for you Greek scholars. It's also helpful for you English speakers. And you guys who like to argue with your friends over religion and philosophy and stuff. Words do not have one meaning, specific meaning, technical meaning, and they mean the same thing in every place. Even in the Bible, the word kurios does not mean the same thing in every place. Words cover what they call semantic domains. And a word could have... 150 meanings within this circle. Um, and so what, what people who study words do is they say, you know, how many ways, and we, we could do this with any word. You know, an easy one is like cool. Cool can have to do with the temperature and cool can have to do with your new sweater. Cool can be negative. Oh, that's cool. Well, there's three different meanings right there. The word cool, that's part of their semantic domain. So, um, words can also be kind of cranked up by degrees. The word kindness. Uh, anyone get a ride here from a friend? That was kind, wasn't it? Um, anyone ever have a friend? I know something really kind that happened the other day. I don't want to blow anyone's cover, but you guys do this kind of stuff for each other all the time. When you guys find out that there's a need, you guys drop bombs on each other because you love each other. And someone just did that the other day. Who in here has had a friend drop a bomb on them financially in term, and to help them out? Let me see your hands. Wow, we're gonna love more people. Okay, a bunch of you. But I mean, like, you're like, oh man, I don't know how I'm gonna pay a rent if I don't come up with a thousand dollars. I got you. All right, I'll work real hard to pay you back. Don't worry about it. My grandma just gave me a gift for Christmas. I got you. I love you. I'm gonna cover you. Well, someone just did that, you know, the other day that I was hanging out with, not for me. I watched two of my friends, so one of them do it for another one. Now that's kind, right? So riding, giving a ride is kind, and well, giving you know some a thousand dollar gift, that's kind. Maybe some of you guys, someone gave you a car. I've heard people give me a car when I was really, yeah. I got someone in the back row shaking their head. Yeah, that's really kind. Like that kind of stuff. A little more kind, right? People have taken bullets for other people. People have taken beatings for other people. People have given their lives for other people. Kind, kind, kind. You can crank words up by degree. So the word Lord isn't one technical term in the Bible either. Does that make sense? It's going to help you guys who are studying Greek, but it's also going to help you guys in English not to make silly a mistake by reducing a term to a technical term. And when a word has, you have to figure out how it is appropriately used in that. So the word Lord, that context. So the word Lord, for instance, I'm just going to look at three uses major uses in the New Testament. It can be a term of honor. And if you guys remember the story of the woman at the well, she has no clue who Jesus is, 
but she calls him Lord. Kurios. Actually, in the vocative, probably it's more like a title. Um, if Anyway, I'm not going to explain that. But um, she uses this root word, Lord, when she's talking to Jesus. And it just means something like sir or important person or person that's worthy of respect because he's a Jewish rabbi. And um, you, a lot of you guys in here are young and you may call a college professor, sir, or police officer, sir, right? It's a title of respect. It can be that in the Bible. So every time you see in the Bible, it doesn't mean this person is, I'm going to see him in heaven because they use this term. It could just be a term of respect. Um, someone could even be using, using it in a way to flatter Jesus to try to, you know, win an argument or something. So it doesn't have to be this exalted title. But what you're going to find is I go through these three. The next one down the list kind of swallows up the previous one. Does that make sense? So this title of respect is now going to be swallowed up by this next one, which is it can also refer to the master of a slave. And so what I mean by swallow it up is if I'm a slave and you're my master, I'm going to call you, sir. I'm going to give you a reverential title of respect um, because it's just kind of built in. This is kind of broadening out, deepening the meaning here. And uh, if somebody is your master in this respect, then you are their doulos. And so in a sense, this, this does apply to us as Christians, because when we say Jesus is Lord, we're not just, this is not just a title of respect. Uh, also through, throughout the whole New Testament, there's also this sense of we are now his slaves. So when the, uh, the authors of scripture sign their names on the books, they, they say doulos, Paul, a doulos, Peter, a doulos, James, a doulos. And then when they're talking to Christians, true Christians, they say, you are douloi, plural. You're, you're slaves of the Lord. We're not just tipping our hat. Yeah, you're an important guy. Man, so is Buddha and so is Muhammad. No, in, in one sense, we're your slaves. But then there's another meaning that swallows these two up. So I believe in God, the Father Almighty, and in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And this is that you are calling Jesus Yahweh. You are, you are identifying Jesus Christ. You're like, who's Yahweh? Yahweh, this is God's personal name all through the Old Testament. When Moses meets God at the burning bush, um, God reveals, he, he basically, Moses says, who shall I say sent me? And uh, throughout history, people have called God Yahweh, and Yahweh basically means he is. And it's God's personal name, and it's used thousands of times in the Old Testament. So whenever anybody's engaging God, Adam and Eve are engaging God, or Moses is engaging God, or Abraham's engaging God, they're engaging this figure who calls himself Yahweh. He's creator of heaven and earth and judge of all things. He likes people to call him Yahweh, and it means he is. But when Moses met him, he said, who shall I say uh, sent me? What Moses says to God. And God says, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bend your noodle here because I can't call myself he is. He said, because what you call he is, I call, I am. That's what he did at the burning bush. And so, and, and to understand some of the things that Jesus did that really made people mad, you have to understand this connection. But this gets a little technical. So this is, pretend this is the Hebrew Bible. We got a piece of parchment here and we have the name Yahweh written on it. It means he is, it's God's personal name. When they worship God all through the Bible, this is the one he prefers thousands of times. 
God isn't a name. The word God, El or Elohim, that's not a name. That's a, that's again, that's like calling you a person. You don't want me to say, Hey person, how you doing person? Um, yeah, me in person here. We're going to go out to lunch today. Um, this is my wife. I like to call her person. Um, no. And that, so God is, that's what he is. He's God. He's an El, he's an Elohim, but what's his name? We call him Yahweh. He calls himself, uh, I am that I am. It's I'm that he is, but I don't, it wouldn't make any sense for me to call myself he is, so I got to call myself I am. But so in the Hebrew, that's what you see. You see Yahweh. He is, he is, he is. But they were so careful about not wanting to say the Lord's name in vain because it's one of the big 10, big 10 commandments. And they got a little bit neurotic about not wanting to break the laws that they stopped saying it all together because they didn't want to say it wrong or they didn't want to misuse it. Which God's like, that's not what I meant, guys. I love to hear you say my name. Again, some of you with kids, like, well, I'm so afraid of misusing dad's name. I'm never going to say it again as long as I live. You're like, no, I just want the sweetest thing in the world for, for me to hear you, you call me by a name or a title, you know? So God's like, I want you to say my name. But, but the Jews kind of took it completely out of usage. And everywhere this appears in the Hebrew they indicate that you're supposed to say a more generic word for Lord Adonai. And then uh, some of you guys are going to get lost here, but originally the, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. Then Alexander the Great took over the world and they say it was Hellenized. And so the Bible then was translated into Greek. And so instead of because Jews did it, they said, well, we can't put this God's proper name, Yahweh, in there because we still don't want people to say it. So what, what are we going to replace it with in the Greek? Anybody have a guess? Kurios. Does that make sense? So in the Greek New Testament, when they translated, now they have found three documents where they actually carried over Yahweh, but the general consensus is that the Jews used this word, kurios, Every time in the Hebrew text, that name Yahweh appeared. What this means is there's also a sense in the New Testament that when you call it, when somebody calls Jesus curios and they don't know him, it could be just sir. Or Jesus could tell a story about a master and a slave, and it could be a curios and a doulos. But all through the New Testament, there is a sense where when you're calling Jesus Lord, you're, you're identifying him with Yahweh in the Old Testament. This is this you're saying he is God. So um, this is the third and final sense that I'm in. And, and this kind of so if he's God, your maker, you're accountable to him. That kind of swallows up the slave thing and it swallows up the respect thing. So I believe in God, the father almighty and in Christ Jesus, his unique son, our Lord. I'm not just going to call him that by for respect, but I am his slave and he is my God. And that's kind of the proper Christian response to who Jesus is. You know, he's not my 911 when I get in trouble or my ATM when I need some cash, you know, or my steroids when I want to become a better athlete and catch it, you know, put the ball in the Super Bowl, whatever. I don't use him. I don't leverage him. Uh, I fall on my face and I worship him. And this sense, so, some of the parts of scripture, they're written because people are kind of clueless. Like I'm trying to think here. 
Matthew and Mark have a lot of this sir stuff going on. And then Luke and John, well, John doesn't use it a whole lot. Luke especially starts to then elevate it because, and then after the resurrection, you see this word kurios, that means Jesus is God. Does that all make sense? So th- this creed is just loaded with amazing theological content. You have the Trinity in there. You have the hypostatic <laughs> union in there. And you have the fact that Jesus is God. And then when you study the New Testament, you got to be careful because when the woman at the well calls Jesus Lord, she's not saying you know, he's God. And when Peter meets uh, uh, Jesus, you know, when Jesus knocks him off his high horse and strikes him blind, whatever, uh, a lot of people would argue that he's not understanding that Jesus is God at that point. He says, Lord, who are you? Paul. Yeah, sorry, Paul. Thank you. Feel free to correct me, throw some at me, because when you're talking up here, I make mistakes. When Paul, yeah, Peter didn't mean Jesus like that. What are you talking about? This Paul, on the road to Damascus, God, Jesus appears to him because he's after to kill Christians. He's opposing the cause of Christ. Jesus meets him, and he says, Lord, who are you? But that's more like, sir. Obviously, you're important because you just struck me blind, knocked me off my horse, and you know I don't know who you are though. Um, but then, but then, as the New Testament progresses, it says that God gives to him the name above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So there's this exalted sense. So when we say the creed and we mean it, and we're really God's people, and we're not just parroting something that are you know are a part of our tradition. But our lives have really been transformed. When we say that, we're saying he is God. So uh, what do I have here? Oh, this is super cool. So in John 8, and if you know these things, this is why we've got to use our brains as Christians. And it's it's just not really common. And we don't, we don't really think that Christianity is a very intellectual endeavor, um, or that God's about magic and we kind of got to just make it up and have this kind of mystical walk with Jesus. I really, you really need to love God with your mind. Um, but if you start to learn some of these linguistic connections, the Bible kind of explodes. But so in John 8, Jesus is arguing with some of the religious folks. And they say to him, basically, do you think you're greater than Abraham? What's that all? You think you're greater than Abraham? Because we, we've got through our, our Bible track, right? And who are the three big players in the Old Testament? Abraham, Abraham Moses, Moses, and David. Okay. Abraham's kind of the foundational figure, father of faith. You think you're greater than Abraham? Um, who died? And so we're talking about about 2000 BC. Are you greater than Abraham? The prophets died too. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It's my father who glorifies me. Of whom you say, he is our God. And you've not come to know him, but I know him. If I say that I don't know him, I'll be a liar like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. Your father, Abraham, rejoiced to see my day, which means he had some inkling that I was coming. And he saw it and he was glad. The Jews said to him, you're not 50 years old. He said, what are we saying? You're 2,050 years old? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Sound familiar? Didn't say I was, or but he says I am. And this is actually a direct quotation from what God said to Moses at the burning bush. 
The Jews knew exactly what he was doing because they were smart. And so what did they do? They said, this dude is blaspheming. We have to kill him because he's a human and he's claiming to be God almighty creator who met Moses at the burning bush and created the universe and delivered God's people, etc. Therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid and went out of the temple. So if you understand these connections, it's mind-blowing. And this I am thing runs all the way through John, this little theme. Jesus doesn't call himself he is. That's what we call God. Why does Jesus call himself I am? Because he is God. So I believe in God the Father Almighty and in Christ Jesus, the anointed one who is coming, God's unique son, like no other person, no other being in the universe because he is God. But he's not God the Father, he's not God the Spirit, he's God the Son. And he's our Lord, as in, he is my God. And we can apply that whole slave-master thing as well, because if he's God, then we are, by virtue of the fact we're just his creation, we should serve him and love him and worship him and do what he says. And so that's just one line, you know, one line of the creed and what it has and what it says about Jesus. So I'm just trying to. Uh, I guess I would encourage you guys, um, know the creed. Some of you already know the Apostles' Creed. Understand what was added to it, that it becomes more problematic as time goes on. That's why I like to get way, way back to the earliest form, the earliest uh, statement of faith that they can find. And I do think this probably goes back to the Apostles. Some of you are studying church history. Uh, Irenaeus and Tertullian, uh, there's... Uh, a lot of scholars believe that they make reference to this in their writing. Liberal scholars don't want to admit that there's anything that, that would represent more conservative traditional views. So they'll try to say, no, this was written in, you know, 500, 600. But um, the, the best evidence is that this is, this is a statement that was well known throughout the church in the 100s. The last book of the Bible was written at about 100 by the Apostle John. Uh, Irenaeus or Irenaeus, um, he was disciple of Polycarp, who was John's disciple. So just one generation, or you know, two generations removed from the Apostle. And they already know about this statement of faith. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, and in Christ Jesus, his unique son, our Lord. And uh, so, and this is supported with scripture. So I'd, I'd encourage you guys to memorize it. And you guys who are learning Greek, learn it. Learning Greek. It's full of great vocabulary words, great theological con, you know, content. Um, and, a great, and it's biblical. You're like, I'm only going to do Bible verses. Well, this is just a bunch of, this is like a tapestry of Bible verses. <laughs> I already went through that. I'm not even going to confuse you with the Hebrew and the Greek. Um, so we'll close with this. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Kurios, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And we're going to cover that stuff in the coming weeks in the statements of the creed. With the heart, a person believes, has faith. Pistuo, I believe, what? That Jesus is Lord. So if you believe properly, that's, that's how, not, not any concept of Jesus. We're doing a class on Saturday, which we're looking at varieties of quote-unquote Christianity. There's, there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of false Christ, false prophets, but God's given us a Bible and God's given us a brain and God's given us a spirit so we can find the right one. And you know how you found the right one? 
supernatural explosion in your life and chains break and you find freedom and joy and your prayers work and he's the way, the truth, and the life. And you're free and life is fruitful and your depression is gone and your anxiety is gone. Now, right when you get in the door, you still got to sort stuff out. Amen. It's not just like, boom, it's all gone, but you have access to everything. And as you walk with Jesus, you get to know the word. You just become more and more and more free. I'm having more fun now than I was 30 years ago when I surrendered to Christ. And there's no end in sight to the things to learn and the the new things to enjoy. Um, But if you can, anyway, if you confess with knowledge, Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead. You'll be saved with the heart you believe. See, there's actually a place in the Bible where a whole bunch of people get saved. They don't say anything because all your mouth does is confess with what you believe. But in that case, in Cornelius's house, it's like God saw their heart and he said, good enough for me. Wham! And he gave him all the Holy Spirit. And he did that because he needed to prove to the Jews that God loved the Gentiles. And anyway, that's just another sermon for a different day. But you need to believe the right things about Jesus and you'll be saved. But the heart man believes resulting in righteousness makes you right with God when you pissed you. Oh, I believe the right things. And then when you believe the right things, you confess with your mouth. And that's what we're doing. We're singing. Jesus is my Lord. What am I saying? He's my God. I'm his slave. I worship him. I love him. He's the creator, etc. With the mouth, you confess, resulting in salvation. But you don't even have to necessarily say anything. It's really about the heart. The mouth just shows what's in the heart. The scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. There's no distinction between Jew and Greek for the same. Some of your Bibles put an extra in italics there for Lord for clarity, but it says the same Lord is Lord of all. Kurios is curious of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon him. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So, um, yeah, that's it. I just wanted to, I just, so we're just going to be walking through the creed. Um, some of you guys are like, I'm living it. I know who Jesus is. It's changing my life. This has really helped me out. Help me put some pieces together. I already knew that kind of. Now I know it even better. This is true. Amen. I got some more, you know, uh, ammo, some more, you know, fuel on my fire. Some of you guys are like, I don't know what the heck you're talking about. I've been in church. Some of you people seem way more excited than should you should be. Uh, you, you know, people crying, clapping their hands, raising their, you know what? If we're really, oh no, right. Okay, I got a funny picture up here on my thing. But if we are really lost and hell bound and disconnected from God and Jesus plugged us back in, that's better than a Super Bowl win. That's something to get excited about. You know, when I was standing up here worshiping, I was even remembering a time when I was young and some of the stuff started to hit me and I danced before the Lord. Don't expect to see that. (laughs) In heaven, I'll do it. I'll do it with a bunch of kids when I'm on mission, but I'm not going to do it in front of adults because I'm not free enough to do it. But it's worth dancing about. Because like Tim was saying, the God who made the universe, he thought you were so valuable that the second person of Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they thought it was worth it that one of them come down here, put on human flesh and blood, go pay your penalty for your sin on a cross, willingly be put in the ground be raised from the dead and then get back to heaven and say now all they got to do is come all they got to do is come to me everything's been taken care of 
no more work, no more shenanigans, no more obstacle course. Just believe I've done everything. <laughs> Come to me. I'll forgive you. I'll give you a new heart. Surrender to me. You're like, oh, I don't want to give up my freedom. You won't you'll never be free until you're following the one that loves you perfectly. And, is, and he's the one that's going to guide your life. He's not going to lead you into darkness and difficulty. He's going to lead you into freedom and joy and peace. So Jesus says, come to me. So uh, if you don't know him, uh, yep, and I'm talking to you. I'm not looking at you, but I'm talking to you. The one that thinks that, that, I, that someone called and said you were coming, no, they didn't. It's, it's God knocking at your door. That's how he does it. He does it through a spirit-filled assembly, whether it's here or thousands of other places in the United States where the Holy Spirit works. And I'm talking to you. If you don't know this Jesus, what are you waiting for? He's just saying, come to me. And for those of you who do know him, he just wants you to know him better and be able to share him more completely. And hopefully this was a help. So let's pray together. Father, we come before you in Jesus' name. We believe in you, Father Almighty. We believe in you, Christ Jesus, the anointed one, the unique one. We love you. You've, you've, you're everything. You've given us everything. You're real. You don't have to prove yourself. You're, you're more real than the world around us. And you're our Lord. It's not just a polite title. Um, you're God. Jesus, you're God. And we worship you. We love you. We thank you for what you've done. We thank you that you've done everything. And all we need to do is enter into it. Thank you for this time together. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.